the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, March 1st, 2021. The cancel culture has now come to the cat in the hat, to Dr. Seuss. I read today from Deadline.com. In Virginia, they do not like green eggs and ham or Dr. Seuss. The good Dr. Seuss, a.k.a. Theodore Geisel, has been dropped from the annual Read Across America event, a national day to encourage reading. Dr. Seuss books have long been a staple of the program, Dr. Seuss, a major supplier of content for television and film through such characters as The Grinch, The Cat in the Hat, and Horton Hears a Who, was banned because his books allegedly have, quote, strong racial undertones, close quote, according to the school system. That's the Loudoun County, Virginia school system. They said they will look toward books they believe are, quote, more inclusive and diverse and reflective of our student community, close quote. Dr. Seuss's books have been under fire for some time by woke observers who believe they are not diverse in their presentations. A 2019 report claimed some of the books, quote, feature animal or non-human characters that transmit Orientalist, anti-black and white supremacist messaging through allegories and symbolism, close quote. How do you like that? Non-human characters transmitting racist messages. Look, I've read them all. Find me one. Well, they did in Virginia. Listen to this from Charisse Granger Mabuga. She is described in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as a national board certified teacher and a parent. She writes the following quote. Nearly seven years ago when I was pregnant with my first child and filled with all the wonder and anticipation of an inexperienced mom-to-be, I was gifted a lovely hardcover collection of Dr. Seuss classics by a dear co-worker and friend. From How the Grinch Stole Christmas to The Cat in the Hat, this anthology of Seuss' favorites struck me as a thoughtful and generous gift, as we were both high school English teachers, with a shared love of language, literature, and reading. I was eager, as is to be expected of any new mom, to read my soon-to-be-born baby, a boy, and Dr. Seuss's famous and well-known stories seemed a wonderful start. I proudly displayed the book on a shelf in his nursery, and though I rarely pulled it down to read, I always thought it a beautiful addition to my son's personal library. Let me break the quote just a second to pause and note. She liked Dr. Seuss' books. And you know it's coming, but until this point, teacher, parent, college grad, never thought Dr. Seuss' books a problem. But then, she continues, quote, Little did I know at the time, and honestly... Even up until recently, the racist and damaging history of Dr. Seuss and his work, which included many famous children's stories, illustrations, and minstrel shows. I'm inclined to believe that the friend who gave me the book was also ignorant of the harmful and destructive stereotypes Seuss used. Over the last few weeks, however, I have found myself learning about just how problematic Dr. Seuss and his books are, especially for children who are black, indigenous, and people of color. Perhaps I am more attentive now that my son is in elementary school and I want and expect his exposure to diverse and uplifting authors and stories to continue in the classroom. 
Perhaps it's because our country is paying acute attention in the wake of last summer's social justice protests to issues of injustice and systemic racism, close quote. Got it? We now know decades and decades and decades of being raised on Dr. Seuss that we weren't told or informed that we were reading racist and supremacist material. They are now problematic, his books, for people of color. How? She writes, quote, Regardless of why, it has been both shocking and truly disheartening to learn that Dr. Seuss held racist and xenophobic beliefs. Black and African characters in his books are often depicted as monkeys and apes. Show me. Where? How? She writes, quote, The cat in the hat. According to well-known research done by college professor Philip Nell, an expert in children's literature, was based on varying influences, including a black woman who worked as an elevator operator in the building of Seuss's publisher, as well as stereotypes of black culture, black-faced performers, and minstrel shows used as entertainment for white viewers, close quote. Okay. Until this moment, I never thought of the cat in the hat as racial in any way. But we are told, wait, Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, he had muses. He created literature and pictures from varying things he saw and various influences, including black people. Well, wow. Crime of crimes. He looked at black people and integrated some form of the culture he deduced from those muses into his art. Not a whiff of it, however, pejorative. What a crime. Now, I have to tell you, I kind of thought I knew something of the cat in the hat and never heard the story of it being, in part, based on a black woman who worked as an elevator operator. I looked it up. I looked up what this Professor Philip Nell found. Let me quote from his paper. In 1955, Dr. Seuss and William Spaulding, director of Houghton Mifflin's Education Division, stepped into the publisher's elevator at 2 Park Street in Boston. As Seuss's biographer tells us, the elevator operator was an elegant, petite woman who wore white gloves and a secret smile. They don't mention that she was named Annie Williams, nor do they say she was an African-American, close quote. Full stop. Horror of horrors. Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, was on an elevator, and the operator of the elevator was elegant, smiled, wore gloves, and happened to be black. What a horrible thing. And, oh, does anyone see any negative black imagery or stereotypes in the image of the cat in the hat? I don't. Here's what I do know. Few people have done as much for education and literacy in America as Theodore Geisel, and few childhoods have been better affected by fewer authors than Dr. Seuss until today. A beloved author and cartoonist adored by children and adults alike, until woke warriors found that tragedy of tragedies, he got the smile from the cat looking at an elegant black woman in an elevator. Let me read you this from a great profile in The New Yorker a decade ago. You know, The New Yorker. Pretty well-credentialed, highbrow magazine. Also liberal. Geisel's breakthrough came in 1937 when an old Dartmouth friend, an editor at Vanguard Press, persuaded his boss to publish and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. 
a book that 27 other publishing houses had turned down. This was followed by a steady stream of Dr. Seuss books, including the great political trilogy, The 500 Hats of Bartholomew Cubbins, The King's Stilts, Bartholomew and the Ublek, and two classic studies of identity, Horton Hatches the Egg and Horton Hears a Who. And so in 1954, when John Hersey published a piece in Life magazine deploring the books used in public schools to teach children how to read, he called them, quote, pallid primers with abnormally courteous, unnatural, clean boys and girls, close quote. He mentioned Dr. Seuss, however, as one of the imaginative geniuses whom publishers might turn to in the hope of enriching the books they produced for schools. In 1955, one of those publishers took John Hersey's advice. This was William Spalding, director of education at Houghton Mifflin. Spalding had read Hersey's article. He had also read a bestseller called Why Johnny Can't Read, which had come out that year. Why Johnny Can't Read was similarly an attack on primers, which it described as horrible, stupid, emasculated, pointless, tasteless little readers, the stuff and guff about Dick and Jane or Alice and Jerry visiting the farm and having birthday parties and seeing animals in the zoo and going through dozens and dozens of totally unexciting middle-class, middle-income, middle-IQ children's activities that offer opportunities for reading Look, Look, or Yes, Yes, or Come, Come, or See the Funny, Funny Animal. The author was Rudolf Franz Flesch, Ph.D. from Teachers College at Columbia University. His point wasn't just that Dick and Jane and Alice and, Jer and Jerry readers were boring. His point was that they were based on flawed teaching, flawed pedagogy. And it was the theory of word recognition, the idea that children learn words by memorizing them. Flesh argued that this was an absurd way to teach reading, since it left the child without resources when confronted with an unfamiliar word. The correct method, Flesh believed, was phonics, teaching children the sounds that letters and groups of letters make. He maintained that there are 44 such sounds in English so that they will be able to figure out unfamiliar words when they come across them. Ultimately, of course, we do memorize words. We don't stop to sound them out. But Flesh thought that people could get to that stage a lot faster if they started with phonics. Phonics. Anyone remember phonics? The story goes on. Flesh claimed that American children advanced much more slowly in reading than European children did, and he suggested that the failure of the schools was a threat to democracy and the American dream since it deprived poor and middle-class children of the quality of education available to the affluent who were studying phonics. Flesh also asserted that first and second graders in our public schools are not taught to read at all, as shown by the fact that there isn't a single book on the market that they can manage to read by themselves. And this hint of an unexploited class of consumers is undoubtedly what inspired Spalding to invite Theodore Geisel to dinner. Write me a, a story that first graders read. Write me a story that first graders can't put down. He told him there was an added requirement. In the back of Why Johnny Can't Read, Flesh had printed 72 word lists which parents who bought the book could use to teach their children at home. Spalding asked Geisel to write a story that used only a limited number of similar words, words recognizable by a first grader. Geisel later explained, he sent me a list of about 300 words and told me to make a book out of them. At first I thought it was impossible and ridiculous, and I was about to get out of the whole thing then decided to look at the list one more time and to use the first two worm words that rhymed as the title of the book. Cat and Hat were the ones my eyes lit on. I worked on the book for nine months, throwing it across the room and letting it hang for a while, but I finally got it done. 
That book, written in an anapestic diameter, was Cat in the Hat. It was a tour de force, and it killed Dick and Jane. The success of Cat in the Hat persuaded Bennett Cerf to start a division at Random House called Beginner Books, and he put his wife Phyllis in charge of it. They shamelessly appropriated poor forgotten William Spaulding's model. Phyllis Cerf made a list of 379 words taken from primers. Authors could choose 200 words from the list and could add 20 emergency words of their own. Beginner Books started with four titles in 1958. By 1960, it was bringing in a million dollars a year. Random House became the largest publisher of children's books in America. A hundred beginner's books were eventually published. One, Green Eggs and Ham in 1960. Bennett Cerf had bet Theodore Geisel $50. He could not write a book using just 50 words. Geisel won the bet. In time, children's books would have tags on their front cover. You may even remember them. Cat's image, with the cat in the hat's image, saying this is an I-can-read book. Because these books helped children with phonics and taught them how to read. I know it did for me. Too bad we're going to be more dumb now because of the woke. This is how you lose a culture. This is how you become less literate. This is how you lose a country. Because someone saw someone in an elevator some 66 years ago and thought it a bad thing. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which brought to you by Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. My favorite product I've ever endorsed or taken. Blueberries, papayas, pineapples, cayenne pepper, carrots, wheatgrass, all reduced into vegetarian capsules using their unique cold-pressed process. Keeps all the nutrients. Tens of thousands of vital nutrients is what you get with a daily dose of Balance of Nature. Boost your immunity, improve your health. Just take in once a day. All natural, vine ripened, fruits and veggies picked at their peak of ripeness. No sugars, chemicals, or GMOs. Third party tested for all kinds of impurities. And they have a great deal right now with free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of those fruits and veggies. Give them a call at 800 2468751 or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Almost seems like there's a now countdown or political death watch to Andrew Cuomo. Boy, you know, flying high on Friday, excuse me, on Thursday, so much so that he's leading the National Governor Association with Joe Biden. Hinderocker writes, two women have now, two women have now accused John uh, Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment. There likely are more to come. We've seen the story before. We know how it ends. Cuomo released a statement himself saying, At work sometimes I think I am being playful and make jokes that I think are funny. I do on occasion tease people in what I think is a good-natured way. When a person says that he or she was joking, a useful question is, was it funny? None of Cuomo's alleged transactions would seem to be of the laugh-provoking sort. He said, I acknowledge some of the things I have said have been misinterpreted as an unwanted flirtation. You think? Like, let's play strip poker? Not being misinterpreted, misconstrued? Or, what his first victim alleges, 
Quote, I got up to leave and walked toward an open door and he stopped in front of me, kissed me on the lips. I was in shock but kept walking. Second accuser, once, when she told him she was mulling getting in tattoo, he suggested she get it on a private body part so people wouldn't see it when she wore a dress. Funny guy. Funny guy. What's the end game resignation? I assume. It appears that he is detested by many of his fellow New York Democrats, which is why the cover-up of his disastrous treatment of New York's nursing homes and these multiple sexual harassment claims, all originating with his ostensible political allies, have come to light. I don't know what the or else is in this case, but if the Democrats could force Al Franken out of the Senate on grounds that appear a tiny fraction of what we see here. I assume they won't have much trouble dispensing with Andrew Andrew Cuomo. Another, Another political figure, CNN, made even more famous just because he wasn't Donald Trump. Michael Avenatti's now behind bars. He was on CNN over 120 times. Will Andrew Cuomo's brother apologize for yucking it up? Will he return his Emmy Award for handling COVID so well? Though the Department of Justice, unlike the Emmy Committee, is now looking into that. They've hired a criminal attorney, prominent criminal attorney, to represent the governor and his staff on all the incoming they're taking. Well, you know my rule. If something's... Or someone is too good to be true, they usually aren't. If it's too bad to be true, they usually aren't. Media tried to focus our attention on how bad the Trump administration was and how good Andy Cuomo's governorship was of New York and his administering too and taking care of the coronavirus. Turns out they were both wrong. Trump wasn't as bad as they thought. Joe Biden's now getting credit for all that Donald Trump did right. Anthony Fauci's no better than he was then. And Cuomo wasn't as good as he was. Sexually harassing women while killing the elderly. Once upon a time, we took women's rights and elder patients and elder care seriously in this country. I guess if you're Andrew Cuomo, you don't have to. Because you're not Donald Trump. It matters only when you're a Republican. It's an odd thing. Shows you how bad Andrew Cuomo really is when you have Bill de Blasio and other Democrats blowing the whistle on him. Usually they circle the wagons. You know, Loudoun County, Virginia, which I spoke about in my monologue, has a governor who dressed in blackface and a KKK costume. They're not getting rid of him. They're getting rid of Dr. Seuss. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 after the hour brings us John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates. 
GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. The Word on Wealth is his radio show heard on this station on weekends. John Dombrowski, how are you, sir? Happy Monday. Happy Monday, Seth. How's it going? Did you have a good time up north? I did. It was a little chilly, up to 28 degrees yesterday morning. Sunday morning up. was chilly. I yeah. can attest to that. <laughs> when I got down here in the valley, I felt a little bit better. Felt a li- Did you stop at Rock Springs for pie on the way home? You know, I did not. That's not... why I didn't see you. Yeah. Did you go? Of course. You Always. Go. Tennessee nice. lemon. I pick them up for everything. Mm, I like their banana cream, too. Yeah, sure. All mm. good stuff. Tell me about the market today, yes. S&P, holy smokes. Yeah, and the NASDAQ, the big winner yeah. today, up over 3%. Uh, you, you know, Seth, I was just uh, trying to think of a, an interesting analogy here. Um, and on a side note, by the way, Apple, all Apple stores across the country are reopening. I was going to get to that. Yes, yeah, thank which, goodness. It's again, been difficult for we Apple users. Yeah, so we're starting to see again the opening, and this is all you know what we expected. Uh, and so I, what I wanted to talk about today was what a great recovery we saw, right? This is the first day of March, by the way, first yep. day of trading in March. Mm-hmm. We're happy to be over uh, February. But what's interesting is the NASDAQ was the big winner. These are those tech stocks again. If we look at the one-year percentage of change in the NASDAQ, up over 50% in one year. Wow. Okay? Now, it is off of its high by about maybe 3% or whatever it might be, 3-plus percent from its high. So if you were uh, in an investor over the past year and you saw the stock market going up and you were participating in that, uh, that was fantastic. Now you see this pullback we saw over the past couple of weeks for the NASDAQ, and people were getting extremely nervous, and we were all talking about the 10-year Treasury and, mm-hmm. and interest rates and inflation. And, um, but people forget very quickly about all that gain that they had last year, and they just think, oh, my God, it's down 5 or 6 or 7% in the past two weeks. I can't stomach this. I'm, you know, I, I need to get out, right? That's, that's kind of the thinking for some people who watch it regularly, and that's why I say sometimes don't watch it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But if you think about, if you go to Vegas and you're maybe playing blackjack and you're betting $5 a hand, but you're starting to do a progressive bet where Mm -hmm. you're winning, so you're betting more and you're betting more, each time you do that, your heart rate kind of goes up a little, right? Yep. Because you're thinking, geez, I could lose all of this in one hand. Yep. Uh, And that's true, and that's a gambling type of a mentality. A lot of people I'm finding are looking at the stock market in that same type of a, a thought process. Oh, interesting. That, oh, my God, you know, I, I all this money that I have, I can't afford to lose this. But yet they, they're afraid to, to maybe make a change to their portfolio. Um, but they're thinking, I maybe should get completely out because the market's all of a sudden, sudden starting to fall. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a good way to be an investor. And if you're that concerned about the market's, and what you're invested in means you probably um, either one of two things. One, you're in the wrong investments for your risk you know, uh, tolerance. Uh, or you shouldn't maybe be in the market at all, right? If that's yeah. really the way you're going to be about right. it, losing sleep over it. Right, right. I was. It's Dennis Prager's rule of friendship. If you're not prepared to be disappointed, you're not prepared to have friends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I just encourage people. Uh, to look at this a little differently, maybe to work closely with your advisor uh, and, and get the uh, you know the information you need to feel comfortable with the investments and not look at this on a short-term basis. Because if you were one of the ones last week who completely panicked and sold out, then you missed on these types of gains that we saw today. Now, I'm not saying the market isn't going to be volatile. It always has the potential to be volatile. But again, if you understand the investments and you're a long-term investor, you can benefit 
from that type of a long-term strategy to help you uh, move into retirement in a much more comfortable way. Nice. Nice. Nicely said, uh, John. And also, I mean, you're right about March. Mm -hmm. In some respects, it's an artificial thing, but in some respects, it's a turning of the page. I saw an article on Friday that said, be prepared for economists to now start forecasting strong recoveries. Yes. So there is something about, okay, it's not really the new year anymore. It's not really last year anymore. March kind of it's a new thing. And we're seeing, again, another uh, you know, vaccine yeah, from, from J&J. So we're seeing some real positives here. We're seeing uh, areas of the country reopening. Uh, and this, again, is really where we gotta, we've got to get to. Yep. We can't, we can't you know, live our lives in fear uh, again uh, ever for another again, year. Ever you know, again. Ever again. Ever exactly. again. Absolutely. Thank you, John. You bet. Securities and advisory services offered through Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finman Sipic, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. You can request an appointment online at grandcanyonplanning.com. And look at the pictures. They're fun. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Thanks, Seth. John, talk Bye-bye. to you tomorrow. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. I uh, was having this conversation with Bill, my producer, offline um, because I wanted to play, and I will play, some comments of Bill Mars over the weekend having to do with cancel culture. Um, and the reason I wanted to do it is because we're on the constant and continual hunt for true liberals and they're an increasingly vanishing species of political character. And Bill makes a good point though and it's not one I haven't thought of on occasion myself about Bill Maher. Are we elevating – Bill, how did you put it? Are we elevating someone simply for saying – what they should be saying anyway. In a sense, are we elevating someone who's speaking basic common decency or sense? How did you put it? And that he's vicious and mean to us 99% of the time. Yeah, right, right. Someone who is a vicious, cynical, uh, yes, and mean to us. We put him in our serious injury list on a daily basis, right? (laughs) No, it's a fair point. Someone you would not want as an ally or consider an ally in most cases. And it kind of comes down to you never know where your next coalition is going to come from. And if in the effort to save issues having to do with free speech, allies come from odd places, I say turn them down not. In other words, I say don't turn away any allies in the quest for saving the democracy. Because the democracy is more important, or the Republican form of government, if you will, is more important than the political philosophy that might be temporarily put in power or not. Why do I say it that way? I say it that way because I think there are about three huge threats, regime-level threats to the future of this country. And one of them is the attack or the diminishment of the importance of freedom of speech, the attack on or the diminishment of importance, the willingness with which we are willing 
the willingness with which we are at a certain point not troubled by the silencing of political opponents. We are continually told by the left, Joe Biden likes to say this a lot, we aren't enemies, we're opponents. Jefferson said it. Biden doesn't believe it. Jefferson did. You don't treat your political opponent with censorship. And until about hmm, 1984 or 5, the ACLU didn't even think you treated your political enemy with censorship. Now they have no problem with censorship of opponent or enemy. And I think that's a regime-level threat. If you can't have freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, you don't have the freedom to vote because you don't have the freedom to access the material you need to vote. And the material you need to vote, of course, are ideas and debate. If you don't have the freedom to debate, you don't have a democracy. You don't have the freedom of vote. You don't have an informed citizenry or a citizenry that can access information. I would say that's pretty elemental, foundational to the formation, if not the existence, of a democracy. Who was the guest we had the other day who said, if you were going to reimagine founding this country or a country, what would be one of the first elements you would enshrine into that founding? Certainly it would be the kinds of freedoms we knew of as the First Amendment. Play, play Bill Maher for me. And finally, new rule, liberals need a stand-your-ground law for cancel culture so that when the woke mob comes after you for some ridiculous offense, you'll stand your ground. Stop apologizing, because I can't keep up anymore with who's on the list. Now, lately, Republicans have been trying to appropriate the term cancel culture to describe what happens to them when they get a just comeuppance for actual crimes. And this muddying the water is unfortunate because cancel culture is real, it's insane, and it's growing exponentially, and it's coming to a neighborhood near you. If you think it's just for celebrities, no. In an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. It's like we're all trapped in the hills have eyes and Wi-Fi. <laughs> Take Mr. Emmanuel Cafferty. He is, was, a San Diego gas and electric worker, but he got fired because someone reported him making a white supremacist hand gesture outside the window of his truck. But he's not a white supremacist. He's Latino. And he wasn't making a hand gesture. He was probably just flicking a booger. <laughs> is this really who we want to become a society of phony, clenched avatars walking on eggshells, always looking over your shoulder about getting ratted out for something that actually has nothing to do with your character or morals. Think about everything you've ever texted, emailed, searched for, tweeted, blogged, or said in passing, or now even just witnessed. Someone had a Confederate flag in their dorm room in 1990 and you didn't do anything? You laughed at a Woody Allen movie? <laughs> Andy Warhol was wrong. In the future, everyone will not experience 15 minutes of fame, but 15 minutes of shame. And 62% of Americans say they have opinions they're afraid to share. 80% of Americans, young, old, rich, poor, 
conservative, liberal, white, minority, all hate the current atmosphere of hypersensitivity. Yeah, everybody hates it, and no one stands up to it. Because it's always the safe thing to swallow what you really think and just join the mob. So if someone asks you if Justin Timberlake owes Britney Spears an apology for not being a perfect boyfriend when they were teenagers, just say yes. Easy. As Justin did, issuing an abject apology and then vowing to return sexy back to where he found it. (laughs) Now, you, you may be asking, why are we even talking about this now? Well... The New York Times did a documentary about Britney Spears. Really, the New York Times. What do you see the searing expose they have coming up on pebbles? Yeah. Anyway, the only thing a- that he's wrong about, I think, the only thing he's wrong about is when he says no one is saying or doing anything about it. It's not true. We are. And that poll of 62% of Americans saying they're afraid to express a political opinion is right. It's just that more of them are Republican than Democrat because one side is doing the canceling and the other side is inviting the canceled on their radio shows. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602 Brandon Weicker coming up. Andy Biggs coming up. Bob is in Phoenix. Hello, Bob. Hi, Seth. Um, I had a quick thing I wanted to run by you regarding the transgender women competing in women's athletics. Yes, sir. Okay, I think I have a solution. Yes. (laughs) They need to form a coalition or whatever, um, and and, you know, and and just refuse to compete and just say, hey, if they if 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 you're allowing these people in, we're not going to compete. I think eventually that would pay off. And I want to point out, I, I saw an interview with Bruce Jenner a few years ago and or caitlin and i really have developed some empathy for it, and i understand what's going on there right uh, more than i did before sure so i'm not uh, anti-phobic you know, no i know we real- get this uh that we've we've come to this point haven't we bob where we understand many of these adults have gone through something emotionally or psychologically traumatic no question about I feel that. for them no doubt right yeah. uh, the question is what are they doing with that trauma? I don't think Caitlyn is in favor of – am I wrong? I don't think Caitlyn Jenner is in favor of women competing in men's sports. I don't think Caitlyn I think Jenner's. public opinion would be definitely against it. Well, of course there's, public there's opinion is. I just don't think Caitlyn Jenner is during the course. And it begs the question of, yes, you know there is this trauma that exists in a certain subpopulation of society. How much – is society going to alter itself to accommodate these individual issues of concern? And at least to me, the answer should be zero. Zero. Let the children be children. Let the college students be college students. If professional athletics wants to get involved, I'd love to hear from them. I'd love to hear what they have to say about all this. That's where the adults play. And it's kind of interesting to me you haven't seen the debate there. It's only at the college and lower levels. Wonder why that is. We'll be right back.